Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast, I'd like to address the anatomy of violence in this country, but in general, and here not addressing so much the psychological anatomy of violence or why they kill in an individual sense, but actually more of why they are allowed to kill or why this situation has arisen in the United States, in particular with gun violence, but maybe just the ethos that is attached to the situation that is peculiarly violent in this country. But I think the same anatomy of violence applies across the board. It's just that we have an accentuated case of it. And I think we can get at this then through a scriptural approach to violence but also combined with the work of Walter Benjamin. And Walter Benjamin was a refugee from Nazi Germany and in the midst of fleeing, in fact, for fear that he was going to be arrested and shipped back to Germany, he committed suicide. But among the early things that he wrote is a a critique of violence. And so I'll bring in Benjamin's piece that Two of his friends has really rescued and kind of the genius of Benjamin perhaps would have gone unrecognized uh, apart from his friends. But if we think strictly in biblical terms and look at the anatomy of violence from the viewpoint of the law which killed Christ or why did it come about that Christ was killed, I think that we can get at the uh, deep grammar of our attachment, a legal attachment, to violence. As Matthew 11, 11 to 12 puts it, that truly among women there is no one greater than John the Baptist, that here is the greatest under the old system. And yet in the kingdom, the least is greater than he. But then it says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. That is, here's the culmination of this old system, and in this old system, perhaps on forward into the kingdom of God, that violence is characteristic of this old system. The same transition is depicted in the Gospel of John with the comment that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth were realized through Christ Jesus. I don't think the idea is that grace was completely lacking, but here is the fulfillment, or here is the completion of grace, so that the transition from John to Jesus, the transition from the old to the new, is characterized then by this shift from violence to what will be described both in Paul and John as the peaceable kingdom. So we might say there's the violent kingdom, there is this kingdom that killed Christ, in fact, this system that killed Christ. The old system is incomplete, fractured, marred by violence. According to Paul, the period of violence in which a kingdom would be violently manipulated 
through what he calls hostility or enmity. He's talking about a form of violence, that it would be violently manipulated then through this wall of hostility, and then it's defeated in Christ, who is our peace. And so Christ broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He destroys the enmity of the law, the violence of the law in his flesh. And Paul equates directly this enmity with the law of commandments contained in ordinances. John, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we equate this sin, which is certainly a depiction uh, from Genesis that the world is saturated in, in violence and that the project of the temple, the project of the law, is to rid the world of, of violence. And it says that here is the Lamb of God. Here is the victim of violence, the Lamb, that is the one who absorbs the violence, and who defeats the violence. And the reason, in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has exegeted him. Here is the message. And so the difference between Jesus and the law defines his message. Uh, the law doesn't take away violence. The law doesn't take away sin. In fact, there is a sense in which it accentuates it. But in John's depiction, this accentuation culminates then. Violent men will kill Jesus following their understanding of the dictates of the law. So here is the fullness of the problem revealed in Christ. And I think the resolution to the problem, not simply as a point of revelation, but a point of the establishment of peace, but in no way should we underestimate the value of this, you know, what is described by Christ, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And this is characteristic, you know, that there is a, a kind of blindness that Paul will talk about attached to the law. The blindness in his description in Romans 3 pertains specifically to how violence and this old system are interconnected. And this brings us to Walter Benjamin, who depicts the law as established through violence. It's enforced through violence. And his claim is that apart from violence, there would be no law which may seem like a, a kind of bold or unlikely statement. But then Benjamin demonstrates, you know, if you talk about law, there's two forms of law. There's what we might call natural law, and we, what we mean by this is just a body of unchanging moral principles. The end point is to establish justice and morality. And violence is a justified means to this end. That is, the violence, it's not posited as part of the goal, it's not posited as part of the end, but it is presumed to be the means to an end. For example, the Jews invade the Promised Land. They commit genocide so that their nation and law might be established. But this is just characteristic of the way that peoples and tribes and 
the modern nation state always establishes itself. There is a process of displacement in which law unfolds then from a kind of violent ground clearing. If we think of white people coming to the Americas, they obliterated the populations of brown and red people who are not part of the law. They're excluded by the very founding of the law of a new state. And the law is being inaugurated from out of this originary violence. And so in Benjamin's description, there's no questioning of this in natural law, whether violence, he says, could be a moral means even to just end. But violence is taken as a raw datum, a fact of nature, a necessary means. The deployment of violent means to just ends, he says, is no greater problem than perceived in a man's right to move his body in the direction of a desired goal. That is, violence is just the air we breathe. To get from point A to point B is the movement of violence. As he describes it, violence is the raw material. It is the means of movement, the use of which is in no way problematical, unless, of course, the end is unjust. And so as long as the end is just, and who would say that an end is unjust, then the violence is justified. Benjamin sees this as a problem predating the modern, but he references Darwinian evolution. And of course, Darwinian evolution had played a large part in the Nazi self-understanding, a kind of manipulation of evolution. And he says that it has rekindled the presumed naturalness of violence in the modern age. So Darwin's biology, he says, regards violence as the only original means appropriate to all the vital ends of nature. It's a, a short step from this popular notion to what he calls the still cruder one of legal philosophy, which holds that the violence that is almost alone appropriate to natural ends is thereby also legal. And so just as peace is established through war, so too final justice calls for final solutions. And of course, the Holocaust, the final solution posed by the Nazis, it looms around Benjamin's text as we look backward as he's fleeing the Nazis due to the final solution. On the other hand, positive law, or those laws created by and passed down through human in institutions, they presume that violence is a product of history. Violence is still part of the means in positive law. But the understanding is the violence is a regulative violence. And this limited violence is judged legal according to who applies it, how it's applied. And so where natural law judges in terms of ends, positive law is focused on means. And the presumption is that just means will automatically bring about just ends. And so where in natural law the ends justify the means, in positive law or the human uh, fabrication of laws, the means justifies the end. And Benjamin's point is that you have to bring both of these systems together 
there is a blindness that's created on the two sides of the law in which in neither instance is the role of violence ultimately questioned. You have to get to the end through violence, and the means requires violence. And the inherent injustice is rendered visible when we recognize that natural law and positive law, the violence involved uh, is not actually a separate violence. That is the understanding that the inauguration of law is through an originary lawmaking violence exposes the true nature of law preserving violence. We're always in the midst of this original violence. It's always uh, lapsing over into law enforcement. And so, you know, you can set the two side by side. The United States constitutes itself as a legal entity only in deconstituting its subjection to the British monarchy or the British Empire. That is, uh, if the United States had lost the Revolutionary War, the entire notion of independence, well, that would be illegal. What is actually an illegal state becomes legal through the means of, of violence. And perhaps the chief perpetrator, you know, if the United States had lost the war, maybe uh the crimes against the monarchy would be laid at the feet of George Washington. Maybe he would have been declared the chief criminal and executed to preserve the law. So to constitute a state is to defy the law and to imagine a people that is not yet formed. You know, in the United States Constitution, we the people. What people? Well, it's the people that is being constituted in the Constitution that you imagine a people not yet formed as the constituting entity. And so the violence will have been legal only in the case of victory, so that the violence has to be taken to an ultimate end. There is a kind of, out of the violence arises a legality. And the extremity of the violence, that is that the complete defeat of the enemy, is part of the legality. Benjamin's point is this founding violence is not disconnected from law-preserving violence, as it is always possible for violence to get out of hand. That is, that there may be an insurrection and there may be a revolution, and so the laws of the state must be enforced for the state to continue to exist. And the law founds and preserves the state through the same violence, so that law enforcement is foundational both at the beginning and in the continuation of the state. The founding and the preservation are not separate. And so Benjamin's point is that what seems to be two forms of violence, law founding, law enforcement, they can't be separated. The law is always in the process of being constituted and legitimated through violence that is, the force of the law, is its legitimation. There's no such thing as a law apart from its force. He turns to the modern police force as demonstrating the overlap. The police are thought to be about law enforcement. Certain situations call for discretionary judgments, which, like the founding violence of law, will have been made legitimate in hindsight because the beliefs embody the law. 
And so, you know, just as a king is not able to break the law, he is the embodiment of the law. Maybe that someone could overthrow him, overturn him, and behead him. So, too, the police retain a semblance of this original embodiment. Maybe not in theory, but in practice. They are always in the business of establishing the law and in establishing it, making it legitimate. And, of course, in the United States, with the Second Amendment, there is the sense that every person then has right to bear arms. There is the sense of a citizen militia, which is on the order of a law-establishing, law-enforcement citizenry, in which violence then passes to each and every citizen. In most countries, the right to violence is that of the law, that is, the law keepers or law enforcement. But in any state, the police then are on the order, especially in a liberal democracy, the police are almost in the place of the king in establishing, making legitimate the law. And when the police rob and terrorize citizens, as happened in Baltimore, we've been watching the show We Own the City, the gun trace task force assembled in 2007 to remove guns and violent criminals from the streets, they go rogue and they begin to rob the citizens. But in Baltimore, as in the nation as a whole, this was largely made possible due to the fact that police brutality was focused on the black population, which brings us to a critical race theory that's actually not controversial at all, and that is that the law is an inherently prejudicial system. This is from an article in, uh, published by the Department of Justice stating, quote, the fact that the legal order not only countenanced but sustained slavery, segregation, and discrimination for most of our nation's history, and the fact that the police were bound to uphold that order set a pattern for police behavior and attitudes toward minority communities that has persisted until the present day. And so the black population bears similarities to the Jewish population in Nazi Germany or the Native American population in the period of discovery and settlement in, this, in the Americas, or maybe just the Gentile population among the Jews. That is, the force of the law makes its primary mark in excluding those who fall outside of the law's protection. And in uh, the New Testament, you know, this is Ephesians, where we started, it brings out the inherent hostility of the Jewish law in the antagonism of the Jews toward Gentiles. Christ broke down the barrier of the dividing wall as he abolished the enmity, which is the law. And so the Jewish law was built upon exclusion of Gentiles, and this exclusion was definitive of what it meant to be a Jew. And so the markers of Sabbath-keeping, food laws, circumcision, these marked out the Jews literally in the flesh. They were marked in circumcision. They were marked in the Sabbath-keeping through special time. They were marked by their special food, and Gentiles did not bear these marks. They stood outside of Jewish law. Now, Jewish law is just a case in point of law in general. You know, at the same time, 
Roman law functioned in a similar manner. The Roman citizens were those protected from crucifixion, and those who could be put on crosses were not counted as citizens. I believe this explains who killed Christ, the law enforcers, and why. The Sabbath law, the laws of cleanliness, all of which he's challenging, the restricted association, you know, no Samaritans, no Gentiles allowed, the rules governing the sacredness of the temple, the laws against blasphemy. These are all leveraged by the Jews to kill Christ. And as Jesus explains, this is a fulfillment of their law. They have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And so their use of the law blinds them to their own violence or makes their violence seemingly a necessity. And of course, the psalm here is referencing this messianic figure that links the action of the persecutors to a lie, to a kind of blinding lie. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And as the psalm describes, those doing the persecuting, they have a murderous zeal for the temple, which consumes their victim, this messianic figure. And it's their zeal for the sacrificial system, their zeal for the temple, their zeal for the law, rather than a true understanding that has them persecute and oppress the messianic figure. And of course, Jesus, in quoting the psalm, is applying it to himself, the prayer of the psalm, is actually answered in Christ as their own table before them has indeed become a snare and their sacrificial feasts have become a trap. Their system of law, their system of feasts, their system of sacrifices have in fact set them against the messianic figure, against Christ. In Psalm 30, 31, it says, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. And this will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. That is, that here is true sacrifice. The Jews would destroy the true temple and the true embodiment of the law to preserve their power of the law. And in the end, they forsake their own religion, their own national messianic hopes. By proclaiming before Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. In order to fulfill their zeal for the law by killing Jesus, they forsake their law and religion. It's actually a form of blasphemy. And the Romans, in the person of Pilate, would mock Jewish pretensions to independence by declaring the, the Jesus the Jewish king and then mocking him, having him beaten, crowned with thorns. And so the picture, you know, the royal robes, the declaration of Jesus as king, maybe Pilate's means of deriding all things Jewish. And so the Romans are going to do their part in destroying Jesus, in destroying the temple, because Pilate is concerned with enforcing Roman justice. He's afraid of an insurrection. And so, despite his own declaration that Jesus is innocent in John 19.4, 4, 
He's afraid of uncontrolled violence should insurrection occur. And so there is the sense that this law-creating, law-enforcing element comes together in the destruction of Jesus. And when the Jews appear before Pilate, he tells them to judge him according to their own law. And they indicate later that this is precisely what they have done. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God in John 19.7. This then creates fear on the part of Pilate uh, because this is actually not only to usurp Jewish law, but it is at the foundation of Roman law because Caesar himself is sought to embody. He is the, the son of God. And so Roman law and Jewish law converge then in the necessity of killing Jesus. The Jewish high priest, maybe he speaks for both Jews and Romans, in proclaiming, it is expedient for you that one man die, that the nation not perish. In uh, Giorgio Agamben's depiction, the supposed universal condition of law is established by the particulars of the exception, that is, the very root of human law, human polity, is structured around a necessary exclusion of one form of life, bare life, homo sacred. And it's only where bare life is structured and ordered in the city, that he says, that it can be called good life. And of course here he's referencing Aristotle, who's uh, picturing, you know, the power of the state or the sovereign power establishes itself then. This is the good life. Think of Socrates dying, you know, within the city, that he would rather die than be cast out of the city. And the power of the state or sovereign power establishes itself through this power of exclusion. It's literally the exception upon which the rule, upon which the law is built. Homo sacer is stripped of legal status and falls outside the political community and is among those continually and unconditionally exposed to the potential of being killed. And this power of death, that is deciding who dies outside the city, that establishes the life of the city. That establishes the parameters. I think that establishes the wall of hostility, who's in and who's out. And so Jesus dies outside of the city, beyond law and religion, as a kind of exposure, I think. He's reduced on the cross to bare life. He doesn't qualify as a citizen. He is the exception. But, of course, the exception forever exposes the basis upon which inclusion and law are constructed. And so that, that's the verse from Ephesians, for he himself is our peace. I don't think there is peace in the city through the means of the city because there is an inherent antagonism. There is an inherent violence. He made both groups into one. There's always inside, outside, Jew, Gentile. He broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, the wall of hostility, the wall of enmity in his flesh. The enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, is undone. 
so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. That is, there's establishment of a new humanity, not on the basis of law, not on the basis of inside-outside, not on the basis of a dualism, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So Jewish law, Roman law, and the universal violence of law are defeated, for he has abolished the enmity of the law. He has broken down the hostility of the law, as he himself is our peace. I don't believe there's access to peace on the basis of law. There is not access to a a law that does not escape law-founding and law-preserving violence. This is what destroyed the one who embodies the true law of love. So, as indicated in the temple incident in which... Jesus goes into the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, what he's talking about is an exposure of an alternative to violence, an exposure to a kind of mythical situation that in Benjamin's depiction, you know, this mythical violence that is just part of uh, liberalism, part of capitalism, uh, but part of uh, human society, that we have this thing that is put upon us, a kind of illicit economic and political power that controls human life. And it is a form of authority that we might just seem inescapable to us. But I think what is demythologized in Christ is the arche, is the principle or power that keeps us in a violent mode of life, which in a sense is, you know, we we all know that there, in our daily life, we need not depend upon hurting other people, that we need not continually establish our power. We have then the capacity for a counterforce. Now, Benjamin, in German, he's using a word here. You know, the word violence is just the word force. And so he talks about a divine violence. But I think we could talk about a counterforce to violence. Violence is a, a kind of pejorative. I would equate it with sin. And so his critique is really a way of rejecting the fetish, the kind of mythic violent that is projected onto the world. The the danger is we'll just continually get caught up in this cycle of law establishment, law enforcement. Uh, In a sense, just as with the police force, so that with capital punishment, you know, think of what killed Christ. It was the ultimate law establishing, law enforcing violence that was put upon Christ, that capital punishment always exposes then the necessity to establish the law. And of course, what is being established in killing Christ in this capital punishment carried out on God is that human law, human kingdoms, human forces would set themselves over and against uh, the truth, the reality of, of who God is.
And so I think exposing the mythical nature, the, that this is a construct, that we can critique it, that we can get outside of it, that we don't need to play the, the game of violence. You know, this is the failure of someone like Slavoj Zizek, who has great admiration for Walter Benjamin. He just imagines that any time that the poor rise up and attack the rich, oh, maybe this is a form of God's power. No, I think that that's just a continuation of the same cycle. That divine force, divine power, is anti-arche. This is Paul's picture, you know, in Corinthians, that we need not participate in the arche, in the principalities and powers of the world. There is an anarchic basis. And anarchic, you know, that word has connotations that means chaos, but the point here is not a chaos, but recognizing that if we're always depending on the state, if we're always imagining that the state will save us from the violence, it is already to buy into the myth. It's to, in some way, fail to recognize that it is over and against this arche, over and against this principle, over and against this force, that there is actually an alternative for peace, for nonviolence. We can enter into a situation that seems hopeless. The reason it may seem hopeless or that violence is always the alternative is because the logic of the situation has been put upon it such that there is no alternative anarchic understanding. And so I think this is the value of, uh, it's there in Walter Benjamin, but I think it's fully there in a New Testament community that recognizes that there is an alternative to violence, that we're not just left with force and more force, that we can have a a nonviolent life, that it is possible, that we are engaged in it. It's not something we strive for. But we continually are in community in the way that we actually deal with people on a daily basis, that we don't need recourse to the law or to the state or to violence to regulate a human interaction built upon communion, community, and love. You know, the peace of Christ, this is not a, a utopian notion, but it's already established. We don't you know, the danger is we think, oh, we have to just start all over again. We just destroy everything again and enter into another cycle of violence. And so I think we have to just get rid of the lie, that this understanding, the blindness that Paul talks about, that the notion, you know, that there is a veil that is put over the heart of people who would rely ultimately upon the law that they're blind to a nonviolent alternative. I think that's what Paul is depicting in Corinthians. And so the, the state, the arche, we imagine may be, oh, there is our safety, there is our guardian, there is the, our resource. But of course, no, the source of violence in our life is precisely this reliance upon the law of the state. And so the law of the cross counters the law of the state. And we have to demythologize. We have to undo it. 
and recognize that we are part of a peaceful kingdom of an alternative way of life, of the peace of Christ that has been established over and against the myth, the law, uh, as the only means to peace. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.